Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Good morning. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the book of Romans as we continue the series that we've been in called When in Rome. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, living confidently in God's plan. And so we are going to look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so if you are a member here, I sent out an email uh, through our system this past week, uh, which encouraged you to read all three of those chapters because uh, that's a lot of content and we don't have that much time unless we all just wanted to stay here till breakfast tomorrow morning uh, to read all of that together. But the reason we're taking three chapters, three critical chapters, by the way, in Christian theology uh, in one sitting is because all three of these chapters, uh, they're really one argument. And, uh, and instead of just kind of piecing apart one argument, we wanted to look at it in totality today. And so if you didn't get that e- email and you are a member, it means your email is, is uh, outdated or incorrect in the system. So just email us with your right email and we'll make sure to get that uh, to you. I had one member who came and said, Pastor Ed, I read it five times. I'm super proud of that. Uh, hopefully we all read it at least once. If not, you can catch up when you go home today. Now, last week we looked at Romans chapter eight. And uh, we looked at something pretty incredible in Romans chapter 8. We looked at Paul giving us an answer to the problem of evil, an an answer to the problem of suffering. And the answer that Paul gives us in Romans 8 is the response of God's sovereignty and salvation, which to me, as I was even thinking about this this past week, is such an incredible response. You know, uh, just in the last couple of decades, I've had the the privilege of studying theology and studying philosophy, and there are so many different responses to the problem of evil. There are books beyond measure that have been written about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And there are philosophical responses and theological responses and atheistic responses and Christian responses and all these different things to this alleged problem of evil. But here's what Paul does for us. He gives us what theologians have described as the golden chain, the golden chain of salvation. He gives us the the response to the problem of suffering as God's salvation. And uh, and it's an incredible thing because what we learn, in fact, if you look with me at chapter 9, verse 11, is this beautiful truth in God's word, which is that when it comes to salvation, it has to do with God's promise, not man's will. And that can be a little unsettling for us at first, Uh, When we begin to wrap our minds around God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, it can be a little unsettling, but once you understand what that means, it actually is quite the opposite. It's quite astounding and quite settling. In uh, the second part of verse 11, Paul says, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of our works, but because of him who calls. So we're talking today about God's sovereignty and salvation. So here, here's the irony. You have all these theological and philosophical responses to the problem of suffering and evil, but Paul gives us this one, this idea of God's sovereignty, especially as it concerns the biggest problem of suffering of all, which is this, eternal suffering because of lostness. So we know, as people who believe in the spiritual realm, people who believe in, in God, that there is this invisible realm, the spiritual realm, uh, and we know the spirit dwells in us. We know all these things. 
But a lot of times when we think about the problem of suffering, we don't think about it in the context of the greatest act of suffering that a person, a human being can exi- uh, experience, which is this, is eternal suffering, which is lostness, which is dying without confessing Jesus as Lord. And so Paul just goes all the way to the heart of the, of the problem, and he gives us the solution, which is salvation and God's part in that. So the beauty of this response also is, is not only does this take our attention off of the problem of suffering, but it, it puts our attention on the sovereignty of God. And so instead of talking about all the things that are happening down here and all the problems that we see in front of our face, we start talking about the God who sits on his throne. And that changes the, the, the equation a little bit. It changes the discussion. But of course, here, here's where we're at this morning. The issue this morning is that This gives us a response to the big question of suffering, but what it also does is it gives us a whole host of other questions, doesn't it? If you've read through 9, 10, and 11 this past week or just been a Christian for any amount of time, then at some point you have this crisis of faith, especially if you're a seminary student, by the way, which is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How do these two things coexist? And what are we to do to make sense of these things? So we've come this morning face-to-face after all these weeks in Romans with this puzzle that has mystified believers for centuries. So if you've ever had that crisis, or if you are having that crisis right now, or having just, maybe you're not, it's not a crisis, you're just like, oh, it's an interesting question. However, it's kind of manifesting itself in your heart and in your mind. Know this, you are in good company because every believer is at some point asked that question, not only in modern times, but ancient believers as well. And so Paul here is doing uh, us a favor. He is trying to help us to understand how God can be sovereign and how we can be responsible at the same time. So here is the sermon in a sentence. In the puzzle of God's sovereign design, we find the confidence to live by grace and to share that hope with others. And so after supplying the golden chain last week in Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul does three things. He first anticipates questions, then he asks those questions, and then he answers those questions. And uh, in totality, he gives us six different questions. We don't have time to go through all six of those questions. We're going to focus on three of those questions today, but we're going to focus on three that really touch on all of them. And the goal is for us to ask these questions, to discern from God's word his answers, so that we can leave this place living confidently in the plan that God has for his creation. So here's the number one question that we have. It's this, how can we be held accountable if God is calling the shots? How can we be held accountable if God is calling the shots? So look with me at chapter nine, verse 19. Paul says this, this is one of his questions that he's anticipating asking and then answering. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can God find fault if God is absolutely sovereign? How can God hold us accountable if he is the one who is calling the shots, in other words? Now, Paul gives us an answer that at first glance kind of hits us in the gut a little bit. Some of us might not like the answer. Look with me at verse 20. He says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? It's kind of a Job-like situation. In the book of Job, you have Job just kind of wanting to call God onto the stand. And at the end, God comes out of the whirlwind and he says, where were you when I told the waves to stop at this part of the shore? Where were you when I hung the sun and the moon in the sky? 
And so what he's doing is he's trying to help Job and all of his righteousness to understand there is a difference between God and man. And we sometimes have a hard time accepting that, but that is what Paul's trying to help us to understand here. Who are we to respond to God and answer back to him and to put him on the witness stand? He continues on with this metaphor. The thing molded in verse 20, the second part, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, he gives us this metaphor that God is the potter and we are the clay. And a lump of clay can never look up to the potter and become uh, characteristic and personified rather and begin having a conversation with the potter. There is a big difference between the two. And so the question then becomes, are we just a stupid lump of dough? Is that who we are as humans? Is that, what, is, that, is that what the answer is this morning? No, look with me at verse 22. Paul continues, but what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, listen to this part, endured with much patience. What if God endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What does he mean by that? Well, that statement implies that there is room for human response even in the context of God's sovereignty, even in the context of God's sovereign decree. So what you have with the golden chain, if we can step back to last week, is you have God's foreknowledge over here, and then you have the golden links in the chain. You have God's foreknowledge. Remember, that's relational knowledge. It's not just observational knowledge. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's that God knows us, has that relational knowledge before time began. That's what happened before time began. And then the next link in the chain, you, you have this idea of predestination, a big church word, and which means that not only does God have this relational knowledge, but at the same time, he has this plan. And then you have the link of calling in the middle, and then you have the link of justification, which is response to that calling, and then you have the link of glorification. And all these words were used in the past tense in that golden chain because what Paul wants us to know is that uh, all these things that God has done, it's so sure that it's as if it's already happened. And so you have this golden chain, this for, between foreknowledge and glorification, and between these two ends of this chain, there's a lot of action that's happening in between. There's a lot of things that are happening with predestination and calling and justification and all the things that happen in between that. And so one of these things that's happening is what we've talked about theologically, original sin. What is original sin? Original sin is, is a very important theological doctrine. It's actually a very simple thing to understand. Uh, and it's simply that we are born into sin. And so we are not born perfect and then we just grow up and at some point sin, and then we need God's grace. It's that we are born into sin needing God's grace. And so we are born into sin, and there's a whole host of things that come along with that. A whole host of things, mainly that we are just desperately in need of God's grace, and that we are, and Paul says this in the book of Romans, we've already looked at this, that we are just incapable of raising ourselves up from the dead of sin and saving ourselves. And so in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he tells us that, that salvation is a gift of God's grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so if any person says, well, I saved myself, God, I'm standing here in your heaven because I did all these things for you, that's just not going to happen. 
Paul's saying that's just not the way salvation works. It's not of man who wills, but of God who calls. He says this over and over and over into all these different letters to the churches. And in the middle of all of these golden chains between God's foreknowledge and God's glorification, there's also this thing that Paul's telling us is God's patience. God's patience. And I love this. Because within this framework of patience, there is human responsibility, and Paul is highlighting that. He's talking about our response to God in the middle of all this. So while God is sovereign and his will is ultimate and his purpose is certain, within his plan there exists this capacity for human beings to respond to God. And this response is what some call a meaningful choice. I love Randy Alcorn. If you've ever read any of his, of his uh, uh, stuff, he uses the phrase meaningful choices. And I love how he describes this. And so if there were no possibility for meaningful choices or for responses from men, then God's patience would be meaningless. And so scripture shows us that God has a purpose with his patience, which is to lead us to repentance. Romans 2, 4, you remember back then? It says that there is this thing that, that we ought not to take this lightly, that God has kindness towards you and God has patience towards you and that this patience is enough to lead you to repentance. And so all this activity happening in, in between God's foreknowledge and God's glorification is God's patience. And so in original sin, we are, we are vessels, we are lumps of dough who are on our way to wrath, in other words. But God is patient with this lump of dough as we have this meaningful choice, this responsibility to respond to a sovereign God who made us in the first place and who desires a relationship with us. He's patient with you. So listen, here's what that means. If you're here and you've ever given your life to Jesus and you've responded to, in faith that Jesus is Lord, God was patient with you and that's why you're saved. That's a wonderful thing because you were a vessel that was, in, that was on its way to wrath, but yet God was patient with you and now you are saved. And so I want you to imagine with me for just a minute that you're reading your favorite uh, novel, The Hobbit. You're reading your favorite novel, The Hobbit. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, you know, you've read it, you know, 17 times by now. And, uh, and so you know how the story ends. You know the dragon is slayed, the goblins are defeated, all the awesome stuff. But as you're reading through your favorite book, you come upon these scenes that are a little frustrating to you. Because, um, because the, the main character, Bilbo, makes some choices that are not the wisest, and so one of my favorite scenes in all, all of literature, especially in that book, is when Bilbo and the dwarves, they come upon these three trolls in the forest, uh, William, Bert, and Tom, and they're arguing with one another because they're all hungry. And, uh, and Bilbo makes some choices there that, that I get frustrated with when I, as, a, as a reader. You know, and I'm like, I know what he's gonna do, but I'm still frustrated with him. But I'm still patient with him as I'm reading it because I know that these choices that he's making are going to play a significant part in the story that the author has already concluded years ago. And so in this scene, he comes upon these trolls and he begins to pickpocket because he wants to show his friends that he can, he can burglarize these guys because that's why they hired him after all. And he gets caught by William and, and uh, William takes him and they wanna eat him. You know, they wanna cook him and see what Hobbit tastes like. And, uh, and so then all the dwarves get caught and it's this big thing, Gandalf has to come and save them. But when you read that, I get very frustrated because I just think, why didn't you guys just keep going? Why did, why did you have to get a little crazy? But yet in the middle of all that, he finds the sword that ends up being called Sting that ends up playing a part at the end battle and then even extending into the next book that we know is our second favorite novel, Lord of the Rings. 
And so, in other words, all the things that are happening that frustrate us, we know that they are meaningful choices that matter, that still play a part in the overall sovereignty of the author of that story. And so what Paul's telling us here when we're reading this is that we are not just some stupid lump of dough. We're not robots just kind of navigating our way without a mind, without a heart, without a soul. No, we are characters in God's story who, who have meaningful choices that we are making. And yet at the same time, God in his foreknowledge and in his predestination somehow, some way is still sovereign over all of it. And so this is the incredible, incredible part because God in his sovereignty is like this author who knows the end and the beginning. And so God grants us these meaningful choices in a way that allows us to act without inhibiting his sovereign plan in any way. I love what J.I. Packer says about this. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they're not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in some endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. So here's the answer to our first question of how can we be held accountable if God is the one calling the shots? Even though God is in control, he gives us a role to play with meaningful choices that shape and impact our journey without altering God's story. And so this is how God works. And so here's a second question that we have here. How do we make sense of God's sovereign choices when they challenge our idea with, about what is fair and what is just? And so this is a second question Paul asks here. Look with me at verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Remember, he's responding to the idea of God's sovereignty. What shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, how can this be fair? How can, how can God be just? With all the things that we see in front of us, how does this, how does this all coalesce? How does this make sense? And in order for Paul to present a, a response to this, he quotes from the Old Testament. In other words, he quotes God's own word to respond to this question that ancient Christians that he was anticipating them asking. In verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is crucial because it establishes that God's mercy is not dispensed based on human criteria or on human actions. It is rooted in God's sovereign will and God's sovereign purpose. And as he continues in verses 16, 17, and 18, he explains that God's mercy does not depend on human effort, that God's mercy does not depend on, uh, on our will, but on God's own sovereign choice. And so the case of Pharaoh is presented as an example where God says, for this very purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up. Why? Because he wanted to disclose his own sovereignty in the life of Pharaoh. And, uh, and this highlights that God's choices, that his choices serve his divine purpose, which are ultimately just even when they defy our human understanding and our idea of fairness. This culminates in verse 18. Look there with me. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so this culminates there with God's absolute authority to dish out mercy and judgment according to his desire and according to his purpose. Now, this can be hard for us. This can be hard for us to understand. And let me, let me just say why. We live in a modern day iteration of Rome. We laid this out in the very first week of the sermon series. And there are things that are nurturing your mind and nurturing and discipling your spirit out in the world that make it hard for us to trust God. And so the things that happen when we leave this place are things like autonomy. Let me tell you, there is, if there's a God of this age, it is autonomy. It is the idea that it is, it is me 
It is me. It is me. It's, uh, it, it's things like the, the right uh, pro-choice, things like this, it, all the ways that it manifests. And all these things that, that happen in our modern day iteration of Rome, they, they begin to disciple us and, and warp and, and rewire our mind to have a hard time with understanding that God is God. And so when God spoke to Moses, revealing his plan with Pharaoh, he was essentially revealing that his mercy is dispensed on his own terms, not on your terms and not on my terms, but on God's terms. And it was more than just a declaration. And this is important for us. This is how we start understanding that this, that this is a good thing is because it's based on the character of God. That when God dispenses mercy and when God dispenses judgment, it is based on his own character. You see, God was not setting up a system of rewards and consequences like we do. We're used to this because this is how things work in sports. It's how things work in our jobs. It's how things work when we, rate, when we are training a dog. I mean, we have rewards and we have consequences. But with God, God doesn't create that kind of system and then base salvation on, on us. He bases salvation on himself. And that is a wonderful thing because if it was based on you, then salvation would be impossible. And so he's, he's expressing this, this core of his divine identity, which is that God alone has this right. And if justice is defined in this way, then it appeals to God's character. And if his actions must be the ultimate expression of justice, even if they confound our limited understanding. And in other words, God's actions cannot be unjust because justice is defined by God himself. He's the one who owns justice. We didn't create it in all the ways that we manifest it and conjure it up in our culture. We didn't create the idea of justice. We don't get to define justice. God does. We only get the idea of justice from God, and we get the definition of it from God. And in other words, God's choice is what makes something just. If something is fair or if something is just, it's because God has deemed it so. Now, let me illustrate, because this might be something that we're trying to wrap our minds around. So, I'm gonna put a uh, picture on the screen for you. And uh, imagine with me that you have gone to a, uh, a track and field meet and you are about to watch a 400 meter run. And, uh, and if you were there and you saw the runners lined up like this evenly, it would make a lot of sense to you. This is side by side stance. But <clears throat> the problem is in a 400 meter run, this is not how they line up runners. They line up runners in a different way. Let me show you the next picture. They line up runners like this. Now imagine that you are six, seven years old. So you have some kind of context, some kind of capacity to think and strategize and process, uh, but not, you're just incapable of having full knowledge of math and distances and, and measurements and all those things. So you go and you're sitting in the stands and maybe they just ran a 100 uh, meter dash and you saw them line up side by side. And this next race comes up and you see them, this is called a staggered start. And you're sitting there and you start looking around and you say, How, this doesn't make any sense. Look, someone's starting out in the lead already. And you would just think that it was what? Unfair. You might even say it's unjust. But here's the problem. Because of the physics of the track, if you line up the runners side by side for a 400 meter run, then some runners are going to have to run longer than other runners. Depending on if you're on the outside track, or the inside track. The ones on the outside will have to run up, run longer if you line them up side by side. Here's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. 
that you can sit in those stands and you can observe the track. And if you don't have full knowledge and awareness of the physics of the track, then you're gonna think something's unfair. But if you're the one who designed the track and you're the one who created the runners and you're the one uh, who, who created the rules and you're the one who made everything and you understand the dynamics of all the things, you're gonna line them up accordingly. And people may be screaming at you, it's unfair, but you know it's not. This is the difference between us and God. God is the one who created the track. He's the one who created the runners. He's the one who created the roles. He's the one who created you. He's the one who created me. He created physics. He created justness. He created fairness. And we have a decision to make, which is that we're gonna scream to the creator that things are unfair, or we're just going to acknowledge that maybe he knows more than we do. This is what Paul is trying to help us to understand here. Sometimes it looks like the race set before us is unfair. Maybe it looks like it's a staggered system, but God created these things. And here's why this is important, because we may be thinking, man, this is kind of a harsh reality. But listen, there's a reason why this is important for us that I think is gonna help us understand it, which is that if we wanna take God and we wanna bring him down to our level of fairness when it comes to, just, uh, when it comes to justice, then we're also going to need to take God and bring him down to our level when it comes to his mercy. And if we do that, we're not gonna like what we get. We're not gonna like what we get. We all say we want justice, but at the end of the day, what we need is mercy. And I'm thankful for a God that even though I may not understand and things may seem unfair in life sometimes, I'm thankful for a God who's the one who created the track that, I, that I'm running on and who's giving me mercy as I'm running that race. And that the mercy he's given me is according to his character and his definition and not mine because I'm not that much of a merciful person sometimes. I'm not that much of a fair person sometimes. And so God's mercy and his compassion, they're not a response to what, to what we've done. It's an extension of who he is based on his foreknowledge, based on his character, based on his plan. And so the prophet Isaiah quoting the Lord himself gives us this astounding, uh, this astounding sentence in the Old Testament. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher than yours. So here's the answer to our question about fairness. It is not our place to question the why of God's choices, but to embrace the who behind them. Trusting that the God who is just is the same God who is also merciful. So here's a third question that we have before us this morning, the third and final one, really. It's this. Well, if God chooses people beforehand, as Paul says in Romans 8, then how can I know I'm chosen? This is the one that pastorally I get so often. When people begin to, to read Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, they begin to think through this and think about God's foreknowledge and processing it. They say, well, it, okay, I, if I'm looking at this, then how do I know that, that I'm saved? How, how do I know that I, I can't even be saved? Well, if you want an answer to that, you can, you can read Romans 9, 10, 11, but especially 9, 1 through 13. I think it solves it specifically. He gives, he, he takes the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is this choice nation of God in the Old Testament, which is a way for God to, to teach us about himself. And so he takes a people group and he chooses them. Why did he choose Israel? Was it because Israel was the best nation? No, they weren't even a nation when he chose them. He's the one who created the nation. He plucked out a guy, Abraham, not because of his faithfulness, 
He plucks Abraham out. He creates a nation from him and says, I'm going to use you in order to display my character to the world. And nations who are not Israel can look at you and they can understand that I'm the one true God. So Paul takes that concept here in Romans 9 and he, he talks about how Israel is a tool to help us to understand the character of God. And so he, he answers this question that we have before us because he points to Israel, a nation chosen by God to answer it, but shows ironically how there were many people within the nation of Israel who actually were never saved. And that's where we find this answer. They were rebelled, or they rebelled, and therefore they were never saved. I want you to notice in, in verses four and five of, of, uh, of uh, Romans nine, who are the Israelites? To whom belong, listen to this long list of things that he uses to describe Israel. Belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. They have the fathers, and from whom is the Christ. Jesus Christ came from the nation of Israel. According to the flesh, who is overall, God blessed forever. Amen. So Israel was this choice nation of God. It's undeniable. You can never, ever take that away from them. But in verses 6 and 7 and 8, he talks about how some of Israel have rebelled and therefore never received the promise. And then he says, is it, in verse 6, it is not as though as the word of God has failed because of their rebellion, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So he begins to talk about how the choice nation of Israel was part of God's plan not to be replaced by this church and the Gentiles, but to be fulfilled by what we're seeing right now. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not, verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Do you see? And so he tells us here in verses 6, 7, and 8 that salvation is not based on things like your heritage. If you are the son of a deacon, it doesn't mean you're therefore saved. If, you are, if your grandfather was a pastor, it doesn't mean you are therefore saved. If you are Jewish... It doesn't mean you are therefore saved. It is not of heritage. It is not of flesh. It is not of human will. But in verse 11, it is of the one who calls. It is something different than those things. And so as you fast forward to the end of Romans chapter 9 and into chapter 10, he begins to put his attention on the Gentiles. Those, in other words, everybody else who's not part of the nation of Israel, who are not God's chosen people. So how do you differentiate between God's chosen nation and God's unchosen nation when there were people who were part of God's chosen nation who rebelled and were not saved and people who were part of God's unchosen people groups who were saved? How do we bring all this together? How do we make sense of this? How can we know that we're saved? Oh, I love what Paul does here in Romans 10. Look there with me in verses nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not whether you're from Israel, it's not whether you're from the Gentiles, it's not whether your daddy was a deacon or your grandfather was a pastor, if you're in church every Sunday, it's whether or not you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And I love what he says in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you hear that? What's the first word? So the question is, how can I know? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can know that you know that you know if you call on the name of the Lord. That's how you know. 
He's dismantling this notion of human will and human heritage, and he's solving it in the context of God's great sovereign salvation and the golden chain, and he's bringing it all together. And here's the answer. If you want to know the answer to how God's sovereignty works with man's responsibility, here's the answer. We're going to put it on the screen for you. The cross is sufficient for all, yet only efficient for those who believe that Jesus is Lord. If you do not believe Jesus is Lord, then you are not saved. But listen, God is patient with you. He's patient with you. He's reaching out to you right now in this very moment saying, trust Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved if you call on his name. The cross is sufficient for every person who has ever been born. But it's only gonna be efficient for those who confess Jesus as Lord. And this leads us really to a final thought, final question, which is this. What is our responsibility in all of this? Look with me at Romans 10, 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So he outlines this important sequence for us of our responsibility. So if we're gonna talk about responsibility within the context of God's sovereignty, let's talk about our part in helping the gospel go forth. And let's reverse engineer verses 14 and 15. And here's here's how how that would look. It starts with sending. It starts with sending, which is God sending out messengers. We know this is the great commission. He sends you out. He commands you to go out. And so it implies that the initiative for salvation begins with God sending, not with us. And then there's preaching. Those who are sent must preach the gospel. Then there is hearing. Those who hear the gospel must receive the gospel, believe the gospel. And then it ends with calling. Those who have uh, preachers who have been sent, who preach, they must hear, they must believe. And it has this calling on God. And so I like to call this a sovereign sandwich. And, uh, And so at the very beginning, you have God who is initiating and sending out. And at the very end, you have God calling. But all in the middle, you have us being used, making the meaningful choice whether or not we're going to go and share the gospel or not. And so, in other words, God's sovereignty doesn't remove our motivation and inspiration to share the good news. It fuels it. Because God is sovereign enough to save, because God's salvation is, is, is being extended out to the whole world, we now know that it's possible for people to be saved. And because we know it's possible for someone to be saved, now we can be motivated to go tell people that they can be saved. And this is what fuels our desire to do this. And so our job isn't to worry about the who, but the how. It isn't to decide who's in or who's out, but to extend the invitation far and wide to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to hear God's grand offer of salvation. Now, I wanna end the way Paul does here. And I want you to look with me. I want you to turn, if you have your your Bibles with me, I want you to look at the very end of Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Let me read that. Oh, the depth. So this is how he ends when he's talking about all these things. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, Pastor Jared, I hear you. I'm still confused as I'll get out. It's okay. It's okay, I am too. Let me give you, if I could, I've been in, I'm still in school, believe it or not. My wife, I've promised her this is my last degree. And um, and, uh, and I'm I'm saying it in front of you too to hold me accountable. So in all all these classes and all these seminars and all these papers I've written, in, in, in seminaries and such, colleges, Christian Bible schools, 
We argue about this. But what astounds me, church, is that no one opens up the Bible and looks at the end of Romans 11 and says, Paul's already answered this like 2,000 years ago. Who are we to think that we can create all these systems and all these, these hierarchies and all these lists and all these things and try to philosophically and theologically try to solve the problem when Paul actually gives us the response to, to all of it? And so if you're confused, you're in good company because at the end of the day, our minds hit a ceiling when it comes to God. That's the difference between us and God. So this is what Paul says. Oh, the depth, verse 33, of the riches both, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from God, listen to this, talk about a golden chain. For from him, through him, and to him, he's on the front end and on the back end of all things, are to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Now, I brought with me, and I'm gonna close with this, I brought with me um, my Ninja Turtle puzzle, I mean, Justice's Ninja Turtle puzzle, and um, I got this for, for, uh, for him for Christmas, and uh, look at all these, this, this is a relatively easy puzzle. I'm not even getting the, like the 5,000 piece puzzle. And, um, and if I were to sit here and put this together, I could, I could do it, at least I think I could, I could do it. And, uh, and I sit here and, you know, we, you get the edge pieces and you just start putting things together. But Justice, he's three and he can't do it yet. Do you know when we sit and do this puzzle together, he needs my help. And he's just not going to be able to put this puzzle together. You know what puzzle he can put together is this one. He's pretty good at it. You know, there's just a few pieces and he puts them in there and he can do it pretty easily and he gets bored with it. A lot of us as followers of Jesus, this is, this is what we wanna do with God. We want to take God and we want to bring him down and we, we wanna try, instead of just trusting in who he is, we, we try to bring him down to this kind of level with the puzzle of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Because this scares us, because we can't put it all together. But what Paul's trying to tell us is that that is actually the point. That's what makes us different from God, is that God is sovereign and we have a decision to make this morning as followers of Jesus, which is this, are we going to be okay with God being God and man being man? Because what we know is that the scriptures confirm these two things, that God is sovereign and that man makes choices and that we're responsible for our choices. These things seem to not work together and so because of our limited understanding, we wanna look at it and say, that's not fair. It doesn't make sense. How am I hold accountable? held accountable, all these things. Or we could step back and we could say, you know what? I'm looking at this puzzle and um, I'm not able to put it all together right now, but I know someone who can and I'm gonna trust my dad. I'm gonna trust my father and I'm gonna sit with him and I'm gonna follow him because I'm not his counselor, because I didn't create the puzzle, he did and I'm gonna trust him. And that's, that's gonna be the solution to all of this. That's what Paul's doing as he ends Romans 9, 10 and 11. So here's the deal this morning, as you process this, there's a couple of different ways to process this. Some of us are processing it theologically. Some of us are processing it uh, maybe emotionally. 
Maybe we're, uh, we're thinking through some things about how this works and how it makes sense that God is sovereign and the choices we've made. I don't know how it's landing on you, but the Holy Spirit works when the word of God is communicated and preached. We've read the word of God. We've looked at it together for the last half hour. It's landing on your hearts in a certain way. So here's what we wanna do. We're gonna sing a song and, uh, and however the spirit is ministering to your heart, maybe he's calling you to just talk to him, to trust him. That's really the call to action today, to trust him. Maybe you just need to trust him. Maybe something like this has kind of kept you back from uh, your relationship with God. I've seen it happen in the seminars. I've seen students who have felt called to, to the Lord who run into this problem and then leave the church and leave the seminary and leave Christianity. At the end of the day, it's because we have a hard time trusting God. Do you trust them? Maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe you need to do it salvifically, meaning you need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus who just needs to bend your knee and say, Lord, I've struggled in ways in my life, but I'm ready just to trust you today. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Father in heaven, we, um, we come to you this morning praying, Father, that you would help us as we we process Romans 9, 10, and 11. Lord, it is a uh, complex passage of scripture. But Lord, I pray that when we don't understand your mind, that we would trust your heart. God, that we would know that you are God in heaven and we are man on earth. And Lord, that we would know that we're in your story and that Lord, you're patient with us and you're kind towards us and that it leads us to repentance and that Lord, we're thankful that you are the author of the story because it gives us hope that there is hope in the story. So Lord, I wanna pray that as the word of God is landing on our hearts this morning, that you would help us to respond appropriately as we sing. For some of us, that just means standing up and singing the song. Some of us, it means bending our knee at this altar. Some of us, it means giving our, our lives to Jesus today. Lord, I pray that we would not leave without responding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.